Hello and welcome back to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy. In today's episode, we are diving into the world of reproductive psychiatry. I'm interviewing Dr. Sarah Oreck, reproductive psychiatrist who trained at Columbia. In this episode, we dive into why might somebody go and talk to reproductive psychiatrists? What is that experience going to be like if you walk through her doors? We explore peripartum mood and anxiety disorders, so depression, anxiety, things that you can experience in pregnancy and postpartum. We discuss some of the unexpected symptoms like rage and scary thoughts, and we explore the relationship between mental health breastfeeding and becoming a food source, and sleep. I can't wait to share this conversation with you, so let's dive in. You're listening to Holding Space Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cassidy Freitas. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, mom to three, and I support mamas just like you who want a supported, loving, and rested postpartum so that you can flourish in that first year with baby. In this podcast, I'm sharing my conversations with perinatal experts from around the world and with parents who've been through it. While I hope that this podcast is supportive to you, it is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed health provider. I'm so glad you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, Dr. Sarah Oreck. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so excited to get a chance to have this conversation with you. First off, how are you doing? Secondly, could you introduce yourself and your work to the listeners? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm such a fan um, of the podcast as well as all of your social media work. And I'm so excited to get some of this information out to people. Um, I'm Dr. Sarah Oreck, and I'm a reproductive psychiatrist focused on perinatal psychiatry. Um, I did my general psychiatry as well as a fellowship in reproductive psychiatry at Columbia University. And now I have a private practice in Los Angeles and reproductive psychiatry. So what is it? Um, It's an area of psychiatry that's relatively new and came out of a need that we saw in general psychiatry, particularly around um, general psychiatrists not knowing what to do with pregnant people um, in terms of their medication managements and and in the postpartum and breastfeeding. So this really came out of that area, but reproductive psychiatry encompasses everything um, from the first menstruation all the way to perimenopause. And so it's really about how female reproductive hormones can impact mental health. Um, but today I know, and, and just generally, I tip, I focus on perinatal psychiatry, which is uh, mental health during the pregnancy and the postpartum period. Yeah. Okay. So let's say that somebody is listening and they've been considering for one reason or another, um, seeing somebody like you and they, they reach out, what does the process look like of connecting with the reproductive psychiatrist? Like, can you kind of like open the doors of your practice to me a little bit and for the listeners about what that looks like from the first step? I think that I know that from some clients that I've worked with in the past, when we get to the point of maybe exploring that as an option in conjunction with the work that we're doing with each other, there can be a lot of fear of like, am I going to reach out and they're just going to put me on meds? Like I really want to continue to breastfeed or I'm really worried about, um, 
you know, I'm being pregnant and I have a lot of concerns. And, you know, for me on my end, when I might connect with somebody such as you and working collaboratively is when I'm working with a client who really finds themselves like underwater. Um, and yes. what I mean by that is we're doing work, but when somebody is, when their anxiety or their depression, for example, is so, is severe enough that it's like we're, we're out in the middle of the ocean treading water. They're treading water. They're under the water. The waves are crashing and I'm right there with them, but it's almost like they can't hear me. You know how it sounds when you're underwater and someone's talking to you and it's like, sounds like, wah, wah, wah. And it's yes. like, you want, you want to hear what they're saying and you want to, you know, the support is right there, but it's so hard to even hear it, to receive it. I mean, depression, anxiety can be so debilitating in those ways. And sometimes, sometimes medication and the right medication can be what helps somebody get their head above water so they can see, see who's right there to offer support. They can, um, with somebody right next to them, you know, take the strokes to get to shore and get their feet on the ground. But that's sort of the, like, I'm very visual. It's kind of the metaphor that comes to I my love mind that metaphor. when I think of it. And so, but then, you know, someone's underwater and I'm like, all right, maybe it's time to take this step at least to get an assessment and to consult with somebody um, to look at what some of our options are here are here to get you back to shore, right? To get your head above water and get you to shore. But a lot of times there can be a lot of fear. Um, yes. So could you kind of demystify it for us a little bit and like walk yes. us through what that Absolutely. process can look like and, and then we can explore some of the options. So I have a variety of different ways that people come to my practice. So I do have a group of patients who are already on psychiatric medications, have good therapy, and know that they do fairly well on those medications. And so before they get pregnant, they like to come in for a consult to make sure that these are the right medications. Um, and, and really, I want to sort of back up a little bit and say that reproductive psychiatry and especially perinatal psychiatrists um, are really about really being with the patient and the person in their decisions and what they want their decisions to be. So I'm really about partnering with my patients. And if that person wants to breastfeed, we find the medication that works with breastfeeding. And so all of your goals are essentially my goals. I am just mm -hmm. trying to find the safest approach. And what really, um, I think with reproductive psychiatry and perinatal psychiatry in particular, we have to talk about is risk, risk, um, because there are risks to untreated mental health issues as well as risks to medications. But sort of going back to how people even come to me. So that was the first um, sort of group, a group that's already familiar with psychiatric medications and wants to know what can I stay on? What should I change? Um, so they, in general, I find that they sort of seek me out and have no problem seeing me. They're already familiar with mental health services as well as medications. Right. I also have a group that comes to me that, like you said, and, and you probably have this experience with your clients, that you work with them. They're in good quality therapy. You've tried everything in terms of the support systems that we talk about in this field as being so important to pregnant yeah. people and postpartum uh, individuals. And something still isn't working, right? And we've yeah. used all the tools up 
and but we still were sort of looking for something else. And that is the group that that I think, you know, I get a lot of referrals from therapists um, that just say, you know, we've worked for a while and this person still seems to be struggling significantly. Is there another tool that we can use? And that can often be medication. But I am faced with a lot of concerns from my patients that I'm going to force them on a medication, which no doctor can ever force you to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so important to, to start off that conversation. Yeah. No, no one I'm from your OB decision, right? That. Yeah. Right. Because I think that unfortunately sometimes there can be that fear, you know, that I'm going to be forced on this or I'm going to be made to feel like if I don't do this, that X, Y, or Z, and you know, just the, I think there's just so many fears around right. that. So it's so nice to hear from, from a psychiatrist, from a doctor that at the end of the day, like, unless, right, like you, you have rights, right? Like you have the yes. right, um, to express what your concerns are and what your goals are. And I love to hear that you're saying their goals are your goals and you're trying to reach those together. Exactly. And so I simply, um, as an expert in the field, lay out for you the options, but together we choose the option that's best for you and your family. And uh, so for these clients, it's a lot of work that I do with the therapist. And, you know, I sort of present the options, write them a detailed letter of everything we talked about. Sometimes their spouse is present at this initial evaluation to really get an understanding of, okay, what are the risks to potentially taking medications? What are the potential benefits that I get? What are the risks of untreated illness if this continues? And then I sort of leave it to them to come back whenever they're ready. Sometimes I fill a prescription and I say, just let me know if you decide to pick it up and really just give them the option of of making that choice. Mm. Oh my gosh. It's so important when you are in that space to feel like you have some agency, right? Yes. I think that when it comes to anxiety, depression, trauma, I mean, so many of these really painful experiences, there's so many components where we can feel as individuals like we no longer have control in our lives, right? Like, Oh, absolutely. And I think pregnancy is just like that, right? A birthing oh experiences are like that, where you lose all sense of um, certainty and sometimes even of agency, uh, unfortunately. And, and you know, we, that's a whole other theme of birth trauma that we can talk about. But I yeah. do think, especially during this time, it's a very vulnerable time for a lot of people um, in terms of uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the thing that, you know, shame can definitely show up in the context of seeking out treatment and struggling in these, in these ways. And, you know, what shame often can whisper in our ear is there's really something wrong with you. Like, don't let, don't let anyone see this, right. This part of you, and it can just really get in the way of people seeking out support. And so, you know, I, it's interesting. I I talk often about postpartum depression or peripartum depression, peripartum anxiety, um, and these umbrellas and what kind of comes under these umbrellas. I talk about these often, but you know, I don't think I've ever in a podcast episode, um, with a guest really kind of identified, okay, what are some of the different areas and what are some of the different symptoms? I mean, I talk about it, you know, sporadically, but never like, all right, these are some of the symptoms for listeners to kind of tune into and then experience potentially, Hey, wow, I resonate with this. Like maybe I am struggling with X, Y, or Z. Um, and so while I have you on, 
maybe together we could kind of identify some of those, um, some of those experiences or challenges in the peripartum period related to mental health that you are treating and that I am supporting as well in therapy. Um, so maybe we could start with the sort of peripartum depression, like in, in your practice and in your work, what are you seeing as some of the really, um, common, but also maybe not so typically spoken of symptoms of postpartum, peripartum depression that you could maybe identify for us here so that people who are listening might say, oh, whoa, I actually have been experiencing some of these symptoms. Maybe it's time, maybe I, maybe I deserve to reach out and get this support. What are some of those symptoms for peripartum depression? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first one that I see that a lot of people in the field sometimes, or we just don't talk about as much, I guess, is um, even very early on during the first trimester when people are experiencing significant morning sickness or have hyperemesis gravidarum and are miserable from morning to evening, sometimes start to have regrets about the pregnancy, even though this is all they wished for, even though they had IVF, for example. Um, And I I do tend to see that for people who these symptoms kind of go untreated or their OB doesn't seem to really listen to them or provide them that many um, alternatives, that I see a lot of the beginnings of sort of depressive symptoms. Mm. Um, And I do think that that's worth talking about a little bit more because some of these pregnancy symptoms for some people continue the entire pregnancy and can be incredibly debilitating. Mm. Um, And I think when anything takes you out of your normal routines, when you're unable to work in the same way that you were able to, perhaps you have other children at home, Um, it can all sort of come together to be the perfect storm in the beginnings of of mood symptoms. I'm not saying that everyone that has morning sickness ends up having depression, but I guess it's just something to look out for as a potential risk factor that I think should be maybe spoken about a bit more. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, with my third, it was the most intense of all three of my pregnant of all I've had four pregnancies. One was a loss. Mm-hmm. Of all four of my pregnancies, the my my most recent baby, um, it was so hard and it was debilitating mm-hmm. and it really impacted my functioning. And so functioning becomes um and your ability to function in your sort of day-to-day lives is a big part of looking at symptoms and looking at absolutely depression, right? Like, so um, can you talk to us a little bit more about some of these symptoms and, and the functioning aspect of it? Yeah. So I, I do think, you know, this has been a very difficult year. We all go through uh, challenging times in our lives and it's okay sometimes to feel sad and down. I think when it crosses over, um, you know, tearfulness, uh, sadness, hopelessness, lack of interest in things we used to like and, and sort of lose some interest in that. And when that's sustained, but I think what's most important, whether we're talking about depression or anxiety, um, and we can talk about some anxiety symptoms, is really when it starts to interfere with functioning. And yeah. so we mean with the pleasurable things in life, we also mean with the very sort of mundane things. Are you not getting out of bed anymore to take a shower and get ready and sort of do the things that you used to do because 
because of your mood and anxiety symptoms. And this is really when it crosses over um, to certainly need uh, help with therapy or some kind of support. Um, but, you know, it starts to sort of cross into the threshold of potentially if that therapy or support system isn't enough, potentially our medications a consideration. And so for mild to moderate anxiety and depression, I typically recommend therapy as the first line. And I do that sometimes with my patients. So some of my patients are surprised to know that I don't even, I don't prescribe medications for a lot of people that I work with. Um, So that's not always what has to happen when you see a reproductive psychiatrist. Um, You know, psychiatrists in general, I think there's an East Coast versus West Coast pattern that I've seen where East Coast trained psychiatrists tend to do a lot of psychotherapy as well. Um, and then you see some sort of West Coast trained that are more medication based. But again, these are these are generalizations and I'm sure I'll be fought on it. But um, <laughs> I, I do think you can find a lot of psychiatrists who do both. Um, yeah. But anyway, so for mild to moderate symptoms, I always say let's start with Um, talk therapy, but once they cross over, and really for me with depression, once they start crossing over into complete hopelessness, let's say about the pregnancy, about the future, not really looking forward to the baby's arrival, any thoughts of of self-harm or not wanting to be alive is when I start to really feel concerned that we need a bit more support um, than therapy. Yeah. And you know, I, I think that it's, it's also so important to identify that even if somebody, well, let me ask you this, even if somebody is, feels connected to their baby, doesn't have thoughts of harming themselves or the baby, can somebody still have peripartum depression even without? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause I think that, you know, what happens is a lot of times we see, you know, uh, what the media portrays, um, or what's on the news or what's in movies and television shows is, is those symptoms, right? Those are sort of the most dramatic of all the symptoms. Exactly. But I think unfortunately what happens is that you could have then a birth parent um, who finds themselves saying, well, I, I feel connected to the baby. I don't want to hurt my baby. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hurt myself. Like, you know, um, I remember for, for, for my partner, he had thoughts of wanting to escape, um, mm-hmm. you know, and he, but he wasn't, and he wasn't suicidal, but you, you can have these symptoms. You can have depression without those symptoms, right? Like without oh, absolutely. And there's another symptom that I think we don't talk about enough, and I think there's definitely a gender component here of why especially um, birth partners who identify as women are not being asked about is anger and rage, irritability. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that can show up in the context of either depression or anxiety? Yeah, absolutely. And I see it a lot in both. And actually, it's great that it seems like through social media, more of this sort of mom rage is being identified. um, And that's greatly appreciated. But like, as you said, you know, rage is something that's more uh, classically uh, kind of said like, oh, that's how men present their depression or their anxiety. But truly, it's something that crosses gender stereotypes. And I do see a lot of that as 
um, a manifestation of a great amount of frustration, feeling overwhelmed, overburdened. I think this year, um, you know, I I do think that birthing uh, parents that identify as mothers have been particularly burdened in terms of the balance of work and home life, a lot of expectations around uh, home, especially in the burden of caretaking while also possibly working part time or as we saw, unfortunately, many uh, women having to leave the workforce. Uh, But these symptoms are very real. And I think there's a great deal of shame around them. Um, And I think that's important for us to dispel. But if, if those are the primary symptoms, right, that's Uh, sometimes really important to identify and to also sort of bring to a mental health care uh, practitioner. Absolutely. And you know, when you really look at the stress response, the human body's stress response, um, you know, what, what are, what's, what's the common terminology around it? Fight or the fight or flight response. Yes. Right? And yeah, there's, I mean, there's fight, flight, freeze, fawn. There's different yes. ways in which our bodies respond when that stress response or that sympathetic nervous system revs up. And one of them is fight. It's very, it's very much a anger can definitely show up as a primary emotion, right? Like it's there to let us know when our rights have been violated or we've witnessed the rights of someone um, being violated, but also it can definitely show up in the secondary role as a protector emotion. And there might be Mm -hmm. um, a lot of these really vulnerable experiences like you named, like overwhelm and hopelessness, Mm -hmm. right? And just feeling trapped and powerless. And sometimes anger shows up, even though anger and rage obviously do not feel good either, but it can show up as this sort of secondary um, protector emotion. And then, yes, like you said, the shame around it, which then leads to what? Secrecy, isolation. Like I need to, oh my gosh, I can never let someone see this part of me. Mm -hmm. I'm so ashamed. And that can get in the way of someone taking the step to reach out. So I'm, I'm really glad we're talking about this here for anyone who's listening to just know that you are so not alone. And like when you look at our body's stress response and the different ways that our body will respond to stress, it makes so much sense. Oh, and I love, yeah, I love that you brought up the stress response because we've been seen through MRI imaging of pregnant people's brains that it changes. And in the postpartum, we know that birthing parents, amygdalas do become larger and to some extent non-birthing parents as well. So we know that the alarm system is affected. And I love that you mentioned, right, it's not just, um, you know, that, that, Fight is one of these responses, and it can sort of manifest in this way. Um, I think we focus a lot, and I focus a lot, on female reproductive hormones and how they impact mental health, but it's also important um, to just talk about that some of these experiences can also be seen in non-birthing parents. Um, And we're seeing that uh, quite a bit. And I think a little bit more understanding and acknowledgement that this can happen in parents that don't have a pregnancy or, um, you know, a birth experience. Right. Absolutely. Thank you for naming that. And yeah, you mentioned how like our brains actually change during pregnancy and postpartum for someone who gave birth and for somebody who didn't have a pregnancy and birth, um, but is preparing for parenthood, right? And what is so interesting to me in some of the research that I've seen, if we want to shift over to talking a little bit about anxiety, is that it makes sense, right? That if you're about to become a parent, that you're 
brain is going to all of a sudden shift and adjust to say, all right, it's time to keep this little vulnerable human safe. And when you look at it, even from like a, you know, looking at our ancestors, I mean, our ancestors had maybe a lot less protections than we do in terms of like home safety. Like my, I can lock up my home and I can have an alarm system. And, but you know, our brains are going to um, reflect the fact that we now feel more vulnerable, right? And our, it's our we feel this responsibility now and this desire to keep ourselves and our children safe. And so sometimes this can manifest in, um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, th- those really like intrusive, distressing, scary thoughts mm-hmm. of just like awful things happening, right? That just seem to come out of nowhere. <laughs> um, and and then also um, another reason why uh, peripartum individuals are going to be more at risk for the host of anxiety disorders that can come under that umbrella of anxiety disorders. But even outside of an anxiety disorder, Um, Just the overall sense of feeling more vulnerable and having more of those sort of intrusive kind of scary thoughts of bad things happening can be a lot more common during this season of life. And once you become a parent, would you agree with this? Hey there, Dr. Cassidy popping in with a quick message for those of you who are expecting or already postpartum. I have two digital courses that I built with a board-certified OBGYN, Dr. Christine Sterling. In our prepared postpartum course, we took a look at all of the evidence research-based protective factors as it relates to postpartum mood and anxiety disorders like postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. We took all of the protective factors that research has pointed towards and we built it into the course. So by the time that you finish this course, you have put all of these protective factors into place. Now, if you're already postpartum in the thick of it, we've got you covered in our Flourish in the First Year course, where we walk you through ways to identify if you are struggling, ways to get support. And there's also a lesson in there all about anxiety and building a new relationship with anxiety when it does show up, as well as a lesson all about mom guilt. You can learn more about both of these self-paced digital courses filled with videos from both me and a board-certified OBGYN at the link in the show notes. All right, let's get back to the episode. Oh, absolutely. And I think a lot of people have a trouble digesting some of these intrusive images or thoughts. And I think it's so important to start to dispel some of um, the mystery around it, but it, it can be very scary the first time it happens. I think there's a lot of shame and blame. And 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 honestly, many of my patients have concern that it might be somehow a part of them, right? right? So a great example is out of nowhere, seeing a knife in the kitchen yeah. that you're about to use to, mm-hmm. you know, cut a salad. And you see that, you see your baby And somehow you imagine that you're going to hurt your baby with this knife. And so, you know, I've had to talk some patients down that this is not sort of this dark part of themselves that wants to hurt their baby, but instead it's sort of the wires get crossed. And I think it's more of a deep held anxiety that something bad is going to happen to this child. Um, And in some ways, I think intrusive thoughts sometimes um, sort of make people a little bit more cautious if they're standing next to 
a window or if they're going down the stairs and imagine their baby sort of falling out of their arms, it sort of allows you to clutch your baby a little bit tighter and be more cautious going down the stairs, but it can be very confusing when it occurs. But intrusive thoughts are quite common throughout life. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of people who aren't had, don't have an anxious baseline. Some sometimes have a strange thought and are able to say, "Mm, that was strange and sort of move on to the next. Um, but I think people that are anxious sort of start to ruminate about what the meaning of these, uh, thoughts might be. And, and often they can be violent or sexual in nature, which can be incredibly disturbing. Um, but, uh, for most part, these people never act on these thoughts. Um, and that's really important to sort of talk about as well. But, uh, you know, I think for a lot of patients, it's such a relief to know that other people experience these things and, you know, they don't go on to do a horrible thing. Right. And, you know, the big piece here is that you're, it's, it's disturbing to you, right? Um, yes. and we are wired for, we are wired for fear as humans, right? It's there mm-hmm. to keep us safe. Obviously, sometimes it's in its efforts to show us um, all the potential threats. Some are real, right. some are not real, like not real present threats. And that's kind of where anxiety comes into play. Um, but how, but we're wired for these things and not, ev- not everything that these parts of us the data it offers is actually true, helpful, accurate, realistic, mm-hmm. but you know, it's, it's there to try to, to keep us safe and those that we love safe. And that's why I love that you mentioned, you know, Hey, if I'm about to walk down some stairs and I have this distressing, intrusive thought of dropping my baby. And sometimes it can be very graphic, right? And that can be so yes. disturbing. Um, but I'm going to hold on a little bit tighter. Um, and now where where this then becomes something more under the umbrella of, say, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, then what we're looking at here is, again, coming back to functioning, correct? Like functioning yes. as well as um, the level of these symptoms and um, the con- conjunction, like pa- like what other symptoms are showing up around these sort of scary intrusive thoughts and then the impact on functioning sort of where we look at it in terms of, okay, is this just the fact that, hey, all humans have <laughs> these int- intrusive, scary thoughts and disturbing thoughts, especially postpartum, it's going to be exacerbated because because of the way your brain actually changes. And that's something that anyone who's listening, I want you to know that you're not alone. Um, But when it starts to be to impact functioning, um, then that's going to be something that we want to take a, you know, this is something more where we get into the line of like, okay, is this a generalized anxiety disorder? Is this PTSD? Was there some sort of trauma that happened and right. now there's a hypervigilance and like a re-experiencing of the mm-hmm. trauma? Or is this going to fall maybe into the line of more OCD where we're looking at mm-hmm. some compulsive behaviors um, that follow the distressing thoughts, although you can have distressing thoughts and and have it impact your functioning right. even without the compulsions. Yes, um, exactly. That's sort of where we're looking at in terms of, you know, okay, how is it let's really explore how these experiences around anxiety are impacting your daily life. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, the level of avoidance that occurs um, is, is definitely something that we have to talk about. And, and I do think, you know, I always try to say when it's safe, like lean into it. So to Mm -hmm. drive on the freeway, even if you're afraid 
um, if you can do that safely to sort of practice or go down those stairs with the baby if you feel like you can. Because unfortunately, you know, when it crosses into difficulty functioning, we see a great deal of avoidance or sort of making life really difficult in order to avoid these very common things sometimes that we all have to do. Yeah. And if somebody's listening and they're like, oh my gosh, like I'm resonating with this, but I don't know if I can, I don't know, like it's, it's too hard to, you know, do these things. And I, I really just find myself stuck in that place of avoidance. You know, what mm-hmm. I want to say to anyone who's listening and resonating with that is that you deserve support. And like, there yes. are absolutely, um, of professionals out there who can support you in taking steps so that it, it is steps, right? To get to a place of being able to get back into your life, you know? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so, I, I'll, and I like to sort of demystify it a little bit by saying, you know, there's no contract that you have to see this person for, you know, your entire life or three right. years, just right. go once. So someone can at least help evaluate, assess, and help you name some of the things that are going on. And Mm. sometimes that's enough for some people, um, for others, right? Uh, And I would recommend, uh, you know, the uh, really trying to get into if you're suffering from any of the issues that we've talked about, uh, you know, good quality psychotherapy, that's once a week, at least is very helpful. But there are sort of baby steps that you can take getting there. And often I have someone that comes in and you probably have had this experience where they come in for an evaluation, and then I don't see them for another couple of weeks when they're ready. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I love that you're saying that because I, I really see, um, and cause I'll get the question. I think there is a fear like, gosh, what if I go and I see someone and then I'm like locked in and I have to go weekly right. years and, and, you know, therapy, reproductive psychiatry. I mean, obviously there is insurance options and, mm-hmm. um, there are, there are sliding scale options, but it can also be expensive. And yes. I say to my clients, the point of my job is to work myself out of a job. Like it is a really interesting career (laughs) choice and business model. The truth is, is that at the end of the day, my hope is that you get to a place where you don't need to come in and like that you're, you have the natural, your own therapist. Exactly. And you have the natural supports in your life where you, you don't need to be you don't need to come in, right? Like you have, mm-hmm. you're equipped and you feel empowered and you understand and you're feeling better. You're able to get back into your life. That is, that's the goal and that's the point. And, you know, for some people, therapy can be, um, you know, something where they come back in and they check in from time to time or it's more long-term depending on what it is that they're struggling with um, and and also the approach of the clinician. But I think yes. that, in or- I think it's so important for folks to know as they're stepping into getting support that you have agency, right? Like you Mm -hmm. are deciding, is this the person that's the right fit for me too? Are their goals, my goals also, right? Um, And being able to you know, recognize that, you know, the point, at least for me and my approach, the point of my job is to work myself out of one to get you back into your life. You know, yes, absolutely. I love that approach. And that's certainly mine as well. 
Um, and even with some of the medications that I prescribe, they're sometimes so, so basic that their primary care physicians, once it's a stable regimen, can take over, or we might stop them at some point. Yeah. Um, so I completely agree with you that really my role is not to stay in people's lives forever. It's really there during times of great stress or transition um, that I can be the most helpful. Yeah. Just before we wrap up here, I wanted to talk just a little bit about breastfeeding. Um, and some mm-hmm. identify it more as a chest feeding, depending on mm-hmm. their own identity. But when it comes to being a food source for your baby, I feel mm-hmm. like in gosh, the discourse, the pressure, um, a lot of times it feels like breastfeeding is put on this pedestal above mm-hmm. uh, the above the parents mental health above sleep which gosh i mean if we're not getting sleep and we're not getting restorative rest um I mean, that's one of the first things I'll ask somebody, you know, is like, oh, yes, I, I know and, and that you're, you're pregnant or expecting, um, you're uncomfortable, you have a baby, right? Like, of course, your sleep is disturbed, right? <laughs> or like, you're not getting enough sleep. Um, but gosh, if we don't get restorative rest, that's it's such a key component to oh i absolutely better. agree that's that's sort of on the the realm of you know good therapy potentially a good medication option sleep is up there in terms of yeah. um, how effective it is in helping mood and anxiety issues Oh my gosh, it really is. Um, but a lot of times, the being coming a food source and feeding your baby, yes. feeding it, it, it feels like that needs to be the priority. And I'm just, I'd love mm-hmm. to hear your sort of your thoughts on this. What are some options? What are some ways that you talk to your clients um, about about this? Because Absolutely. I know that breastfeeding can be so precious to people, right? And so, oh, it can so important to them for connection and attachment and feeling like, especially if you're feeling depressed or anxious, like this is something I can do, right? Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, but I do find, uh, like you said, and I think the pendulum has swung in the direction, and I, I see it swinging sort of somewhere in between, where there is, of course. Um, you know, we highlight the importance of breast or chest feeding in terms of the nutrition it provides, the connection, the bonding. Um, but we also emphasize the importance of sleep, um, that formula or supplementation um, is great as well and can be a great source of nutrition for our babies um, because too often, like you said, one is put on a pedestal and the other one is sort of seen. And in a lot of ways, I have to say it's stigmatized. Um, you know, I, I was hopeful and I think it's been swinging in one direction and the other, and I hope we get to a good balance where we really, um, have it be patient focused and something that we sort of talk to our patients about and depending on our patients, we sort of help them navigate the best decision for them. But I remember when I delivered my baby, um, I wasn't even given a choice about formula feeding. It was just Mm -hmm. immediately to the chest, which was wonderful, but I would have appreciated a conversation conversation about what my options were. Um, Instead, I found myself for the next, you know, two or three days in the hospital, not being able to sleep like an hour because my baby was constantly wanting to feed and I and fussy and, and that can be really difficult. And for some people, uh, for mood and anxiety disorders, sleep can exacerbate these, um, especially for people with bipolar disorder. Sleep is so essential um, to stability and 
sleep or a sleepless night can sort of really set off what could be a depressive episode or a manic episode. And again, I think it's not one size fits all. I also think that the combination of breastfeeding and formula feeding in the right person can also be a great combination. Mm. So I would like it to be more patient focused instead of you know, just focusing on, um, just one option being the only option. Um, because often you'll get people who, uh, you know, for some reason or another breast or chest feeding didn't work out and then they're able to get sleep. They feed their baby formula and they're doing great. Uh, so I like to talk to my patients that often they have to advocate for themselves, um, Mm. during the hospital stay and for what they would like, but it can be a difficult area to navigate. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think that I I appreciate you naming the sort of pendulum because I think that, you know, there was a period of time where um, lactating parents, you know, were not getting the support that they needed. Yes, absolutely. Where now, you know, anybody who's giving their baby a bottle or formula feeding can feel this sort of shame and pressure and guilt. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there was the whole, it was intended to be a great, um, intervention in hospitals has turned out to sort of, I think, really marginalize parents that choose not to breast or chest feed. I completely agree. And so, you know, I think this whole breast is best. It's gosh, it's actually not helpful because of course you want to, well, why wouldn't I want to give my child the best? And like, if I, if I supplement, if I choose to feed my, my baby formula, if I have to feed my baby formula, like I'm not giving them the best and what kind of parent does that make me? Oh, and then, but then though the fed is best sort of sentiment. I also don't think that's helpful because it's like, well, but what if I, I, I'm trying really hard to breastfeed and I'm still, it still doesn't, doesn't feel like supportive enough. And so what I actually think is best is support, right? Like support is best. And this is such a nuanced situation thing to look at for each individual, as you said. Um, So I really appreciate your take on this. Um, and I hope that those who are listening can can really take it in, right? Just how important at the end of the day, like what like what you feel like breast milk is so incredible, but also what is so incredible is a parent that is well and healthy. Yes. And I always like now that this is my third baby, I, you know, it's funny, I have older children, nine and six, and like they, I mean, there are days where I'm like, I don't know how much nutritional value they ate in what in the meals today. And it's like, right. you know, but it's like, it's all good. It's just a day. It's and like, all good. Exactly. It's all good. And, but then I think about just the pressure I felt when both of them were babies of like this exclusive breastfeeding sentiment, you know? And I don't know. It's just so, it's so interesting. Um, so I, I really hope those who are listening can really take in what we're, what we're saying here and what you're sharing. Oh, absolutely. And also I think it's important to note that there are, Uh, medications that treat anxiety and depression um, that can be very safely uh, used while breastfeeding. So it's not incompatible with taking um, psychiatric medications. We just have to find the best options um, for that person. And so again, it's really about supporting um, where that person, what, what that person's goals are, but also sort of being able to reflect, you know, this seems like a great goal, but you know, the, even with all of this assistance and support, 
you know, the breastfeeding doesn't, it seems to be very disruptive to your schedule. It doesn't seem to be sort of doing great things for your body. Like, is there Mm -hmm. something else that we can consider? But again, it's sort of partnering together Mm -hmm. and no physician and no therapist, right. should be telling you what to do. It's really about sort of partnering with you to find the best options that are going to be the best for your mental health, which will event will, which will make you a better parent, Mm -hmm. right. If you take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we were sort of getting at where breast milk is great, but what's even better is a very present parent that's yeah. that's able to take care of themselves and as well. Yeah, 100%. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today. I'm I'm so grateful to you. Can you share with the listeners where they can continue to connect with you and find your work? And I'll be sure to share links to all of this in the show notes for those who are listening. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, yes, my Instagram is at sarahoricmd, and my website is www.sarahoricmd.com. And yes, follow. I'd be happy to, you know, continue to share some of my knowledge and and sort of continue to create a community. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you. I can't wait to share this one. Thank you, Sarah. You've been listening to Holding Space Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, you might want to hit that subscribe button to be the first to hear when new episodes air. Looking for more support? I teamed up with a board-certified OBJN to bring you two e-courses for expecting and postpartum parents. Head over to the show notes to learn more. Thank you so much for inviting me into part of your day today. I'm so grateful, and I hope you have a beautiful, wonderful rest of your day.